But where we often ask those questions as excuses, Jesus asks them of us as tests. Not as temptations. He's not seeking to make us fail. He asks them of us as tests that he wants us to pass. He does not use them as tests of our own power or goodness. He uses them as tests of our trust in his power and goodness. He probes our hearts not for self-confidence, but for faith in him. Jesus tests our faith in order to prove his power. That's the whole point of everything that's going to be said this morning about John 6, 1 to 21. If you would turn there with me in your Bibles, John 6, 1 through 21. Jesus tests our faith in order to prove his power. So there's both a challenge and an encouragement here. Jesus tests our faith. That's the challenge. But he does so in order to prove his power, and that is the encouragement. And that dual challenge and encouragement is the reason that we see two seemingly unrelated miracles back-to-back in John 6, 1 through 21. Really, three. They represent different tests of faith. What do we have to offer others? And how are we going to make it ourselves? These are not excuses we offer, but rather tests that Jesus wants us and expects us to pass. So follow along with me in your Bible as I start us off by reading John 6, 1 through 15. And we'll cover through verse, through verse 21 this morning. John 6, verses 1 through 15. After this... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled Twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what do we have to offer others? What do we have to offer others? That is Jesus' first test. What are you going to offer anybody? 
verses 1 to 15. Jesus has just healed a paralytic on the Sabbath at the healing pool near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. If you'll remember from back in chapter 5, the Jews had taken him to task over that for breaking the Sabbath. How dare you do a work? You're telling him to pick up his pallet and walk on the Sabbath? They're not supposed to pick up anything on the Sabbath, especially not anything that heavy. When in reality, the healing illustrated the freedom and rest that the Sabbath symbolized. He had just taught the Jews that God the Father testifies to him, that the scriptures testify to him, and that his own healing miracles testify that he really is equal with God. Moses had testified to Jesus, which John had already been at pains to show all the way through the book. And Jesus will now prove yet again that Moses was testifying to him. It's after all of those things that Jesus, now back home from Jerusalem, from the feast, crosses over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in chapter 6. In verse 2, a big crowd follows him across the lake. Anybody ever followed you across a lake? Nobody's ever followed me across the lake. Why did they follow him? Because he was doing incredible things. They were seeing him heal people. But again, in John, sign faith, faith based on seeing Jesus do miracles, is inferior to faith based on trusting Jesus' character and taking him at his word. Lots of people follow Jesus around like that, following him around the lake to see him do cool stuff. But just following Jesus around like that for those reasons didn't make you a disciple of Jesus. It made you a fanboy, not a disciple. They're different. It made you... A lackey, a groupie, but not a disciple. J.C. Ryle said, The great majority probably followed from that vague, idle curiosity and love of excitement, which are the principles that gather nearly every crowd in the world. It's exciting to be a Jesus groupie. You never knew what he was going to do next. What was he going to say? How was he going to put the Pharisees in their place? How's he going to slam them? Doesn't mean they're disciples, though. Just being spiritually curious, loving, excitement, even religious excitement, seeking a religious wow factor, Wanting to see or hear amazing things or really bold things, that doesn't make you a Christian. You can follow the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, the divine Jesus, for superficial, selfish, sensationalized reasons. And you know, all that makes you is a Jesus paparazzi following him around with your camera. What's he going to do next? Did you get that? Did you hear that? That doesn't make you a Christian. Listening to sensationalized preachers on the radio or on the internet or on some podcast, you think, boy, that guy is so bold and he says the craziest stuff, but I think he's right. He's really putting those bad teachers in their place. That doesn't make you a Christian. That makes you a religious gawker. Different. Jesus goes up into the mountain with his disciples. In verse 4, it was near the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, the same time of year when he cleansed the temple in chapter 2, verse 13. So it was about a year after he turned water to wine in Cana. But mention of the Passover is also a reminder of Moses. 
Because Passover was instituted under Moses' leadership. So John's setting up this whole scene to relate it to Moses because that's what Jesus is going to do with it later in the chapter, as we'll see next week in the Bread of Life discourse, manna from heaven. For now, the first thing Jesus does in verse 5 is to test Philip's faith. He singles out Philip probably because this is the area Philip is from, Bethsaida. Philip is a local. So Jesus is asking him, hey, come here, bro. Where's the closest bodega? Where's the nearest jewel? Hmm? Where's the Costco where we can get bread at a bulk discount? From where will we buy bread in order that these may eat? And this he said, testing him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. From where? From where? That is the great question of John's gospel. Nathaniel had already asked it. From where do you know me? The waiter at the wedding wondered, where did you get this wine? Where did this wine come from? He didn't know where it came from. In John 2.10, Nicodemus doesn't know where the wind comes from, much less the new birth. The Samaritan woman asked Jesus, from where will you get this living water? Jesus asks here in John 6, from where will we get bread to feed so many people? The people in John 7.27 assume they know where Jesus is from, but in 8.14 he reminds the Jews, you don't know where I am from. It's a man born blind who points out the irony to the Jews in chapter 9, verse 30. Now, this is an amazing thing, that Jesus opened my eyes, and you don't know where he is from. And in chapter 19, verse 9, the whole gospel comes down on this very question. When Pilate hears that Jesus made himself out to be the Son of God, he asks Jesus nervously, where are you from? From where? From where? From where? He's sent from heaven. That's where he's from. That's John's answer. All the way through the book. Over 70 times. Sent, 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 sent. By who? From where? By God. From heaven. So Jesus is testing Philip's faith. Where are we going to get bread? Knowing all along what he was about to do. Jesus will do that, you know? He will raise a question for you to ask in order to test your faith in him. Not in yourself, in him. Knowing all the while what he himself is about to do for you, for us. In fact, Jesus tests Philip's faith precisely because, for, he knows what he himself is about to do for us, for you. You know that sense of dread or fear or nervousness? What am I going to do about, where are we going to get enough for, how are we going to solve the, why don't we know what we're going to do about yet? You know that feeling? <laughs> you know where that comes from? <laughs> that comes from Jesus. He is testing you because he knows what he's about to do. He asked it of Philip in the context of ministering to other people. Where are we going to get enough bread for this crowd? Hey, we should feed them. How are we going to do that? Where's that all going to come from? How's this going to work? Not just for us to get bread for ourselves, but for them, for those other people who are coming to us for bread. How are we going to feed them? You know, you feel the acuteness of this question every single time you hear the word evangelism, don't you? I'm going to say it again. Evangelism. Did you feel that in your heart? Ah! Where am I going to get 
the boldness to do that? Where am I going to get the words to do that? Where am I going to get the love to do that? Where am I going to get the time and energy to do that? Where am I going to get the wisdom to do that? Where am I going to get the, where's the bread going to come from? Why? Because you think it is impossible for you to be the one to feed other people on the bread of life. That's why. You don't have it in you. In your flesh. None of us do. Where are you going to buy bread to feed others? What in the world do I have to say to anyone else about Jesus? But this question is a call to faith in Jesus to supply all we need for proclaiming Jesus and feeding other people on Jesus. You see? Jesus wants you to see that. It's a call to faith in Jesus to supply all we need for disciple-making, for church life, for church health, for delighting in the things that God delights in. It's a call to faith for us as a church, as a group of disciples in Christian life and ministry together, just as much as it was a call to faith for Philip. How am I going to make it if I stay at this church and have to pay these insane property taxes? How am I going to make it when I'm working this job that seems to take all my energy, and I know the Bible is calling me to love other people in my local church and in my community with the gospel. Where's the bread going to come from? From where? It is a call to faith in Jesus. For our evangelism, our disciple-making, our elder development, our deacon ministry, our church budgeting, our church planting, the multiplication of church membership and missions. is a call to faith in Jesus for all of it. Where will the bread come from? John's question is still our own question today. From where? From where will we get wisdom for life? Where will we get power and wisdom and energy for ministry? From where will we get the boldness for evangelism or the people to form a strong and faithful congregation? From where will we get the diverse giftedness to build up the body of Christ here? From where will we get blessing, multiplication of disciples, deepening of discipleship, sufficient energy and time for ministry, genuine love for people, more people to pray with us, additional elders, more deacons, more insight into Scripture, More servants, more preachers, more church planters, more missionaries, more money for hiring more dedicated staff and supporting more international workers. From where will it all come when nobody's moving to Elgin as a demographic trend? Where's it all going to come from? When we feel like our energy is sapped because we're having all these babies and have to take care of them. Where's it all going to come from? Because we don't have it in us. Where will it all come from? Especially the encouragement to persevere together when we don't know what to do or how to do it in our own strength. From where? Jesus knows from where. Jesus knows where it's going to come from. And he wants Philip to know, and he wants you and me to know. He wants us to share that encouraging knowledge. From where? From him. That's from where. Jesus asked this question still today. He knows what he is going to do before he tests us. Church, we should be both challenged and encouraged by this. The Lord tests us. He tests our faith in his promises, our patience in his timing, our faithfulness in the meantime, and our perseverance under trial. But he tests us precisely because he knows what he is about to do. 
not because he knows what we are going to do, but what he is going to do about what we don't know what to do. I think I needed another about in that sentence, but it would have dangled a participle. He doesn't leave us to our own devices or resources. He knows what he's going to do to provide for us and to display his power and his glory to the principalities and powers in the spiritual and heavenly places. He knows even when we don't know. So we must learn Philip's lesson. When Jesus asks us from where, we must not look to him and say, that's impossible, Jesus. Unless what we mean is that's impossible unless you do something and give something. We must look to him and say, oh, Lord, you know, like Ezekiel said in the valley, in the vision of the valley of dry bones. Remember that when God asked Ezekiel in his dream, hey, Ezekiel, look at these bones. Look at these millions of dry, dead human bones in the valley that I'm showing you in your vision. Can these bones live? And what did Ezekiel say? Oh, Lord, you know. You you know. I can't tell you that they can't live because you're you. And, and, And I know you're asking me for a reason, so you know the answer to your question. J.C. Ryle said, to all who endeavor to do good to souls, which should be all of us, Jesus can call into being that which was not before, and he can call it out of nothing. This is what he's doing in in the multiplication of the bread. He is making bread exist that did not exist. And so Ryle says, we must never despair of anyone being saved. Amen to that. Jesus can make saints out of sinners just as easily as he multiplied bread to 5,000 men. And he can do it through your poor little evangelism and my poor little sermons and our poor little church. Just like he did it through the poor little boys, five loaves and two fish. He can do it. And he wants you and me to believe it and to pray for it and to ask him for it. Now notice the way Jesus asked the question. From where not will we get bread? From where will we buy bread so that these may eat? He walks Philip straight into the human impossibility of the situation by putting it in financial terms. Like even if they had the money to buy it, the logistics won't work. Like, first of all, they don't have the money. Jesus doesn't have any place to lay his head. He doesn't have a paid-off house that he could sell or mortgage and get the money for ministry. There's no use running the numbers here. There is no bodega nearby with enough bread on the shelves to feed this many men. So Philip initially fails the test in verse 7. Philip answers him, well, 200 denarii with a bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. I mean, look, man, we could... We could spend 200 days' wages of a farmhand. We could spend over six months of money and not buy enough for every one of these guys to get a taste. So for Philip in verse 7, this project is a really nice thought, but the cost is just prohibitive. We just, Jesus, you are so kind. You're so nice. But, I mean, even Philip, the local, has no idea where, where to buy that much bread. It's just impossible. And Jesus makes Philip admit it. This is impossible. But the issue is of having enough bread recalls Moses' complaint to God in Numbers 11.22. When Israel grumbled about the manna, God promised them 
meat. And Moses asked, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Moses' implicit question is the same as John's. From where? Unless we wonder if John really is alluding to Numbers 11, we should recognize that two of the only eight occurrences of this word enough in the Greek Old Testament happen in Numbers 11.22. And one of the only eight New Testament occurrences of this same word happens here in John 6 at the feeding of the 5,000. Enough, enough, enough. That's enough to be sure that there's an allusion to the word enough in Numbers 11.22 from John 6. Jesus will provide enough here as God provided enough in Numbers 11, contrary to the doubts of his own servants. Jesus will multiply food for his people in the wilderness because Jesus himself is enough for his people in the wilderness. If they have him, they have enough. If we have Jesus, then we know we will have all we could ever need. If we have him, we will have enough. In verses 8 to 9, one of Jesus' other disciples, Andrew, Peter's brother, sees the problem similarly and says in verse 9, here's a little boy who has five loaves and two fish, but what's that to so many? I mean, this is all we got. Like, I kind of am embarrassed to bring it up, but... <laughs> a little boy. Immaturity. With a little food, inadequacy. Isn't that how you feel about evangelism? Isn't that how you feel about ministry? I am too immature and I am too inadequate. I am not enough and what I have is not enough. And what I know is not enough and what I'm able to do is not enough. And what does Jesus say to you? What does Jesus say to the disciples when he discovers that boy and his five loaves and his two fish? What does he say? Have the men sit down. <laughs> uh, that's a great line. <laughs> Everybody sit down. Immature inadequacy in the face of human impossibility is all Jesus has to work with here. What is this to so many? And we should ask the follow-up question, what do you mean by this? If you mean by this, what is Jesus to so many, then problem solved. If what you mean is this inadequate physical resource of bread and fish to so many, then the problem persists. Now, it's tempting to think that we should find ourselves in the disciples or in the crowds, and maybe that's true. We're the doubting disciple. We're the fickle, superficial crowds. Those things may be true to an extent, but it's also true that you and I, Christian, are the immature inadequacy that Jesus has to work with. We ourselves are the little boy with not enough. I was, <laughs> I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and I saw a a intern, a pastoral intern who is now like grown up, like he was an intern 20 years ago at a, at a church that I was at, and now he's pastoring his own church, he's been through his own ministry struggles, he's a mature, godly guy, and he saw another guy who is older than him who was supervising him as an intern back in the day, and he said to me kind of privately, he said, man, I come to this kind of thing and I still feel like a little kid, like I feel like that guy still views me as an intern, I laugh. I know. I know. I, I sometimes feel like that too. Like you never kind of outgrow that little boy, right? You feel like that. You don't want to admit it, but you feel like that sometimes with your dad or with older men that you respect or in an area of ministry that you feel incompetent in, especially. You feel like, I just, when am I ever going to outgrow feeling like that? Immature inadequacy. We ourselves are the little boy with not enough. Our giftedness, our faithfulness, our love, our knowledge, our numbers, our money, we're not enough, we're not much to look at, we're not much for Jesus to work with, but that's okay. It's okay 
that you are not enough. Jesus knows you're not enough. Jesus knows we're not enough. Because Jesus himself is the bread of life. And he can use us, therefore, to feed others on himself, even though we are immature in our own eyes, inadequate in our own eyes, facing the human impossibility of feeding others on the gospel of Jesus. You've got to get that through your head and through your heart. You can't just listen to that and then go away and be like, oh, wow, time for lunch. No. Get that through your head and your heart, Christian. Stop and think about that this afternoon. Go back and read this in application to yourself and to this church and to your immaturities and inadequacies, which you share with us. You see Philip and Andrew's problem, don't you? It's our problem. We're just like them. We don't realize who we have among us. We don't realize what Jesus is willing and able to do for us in our own immaturity and inadequacy and limited potential. We don't realize it. He's willing. He wants to do it. How dare we think that Jesus is less willing to save people than we are? It didn't occur to Philip and Andrew that Jesus was willing and able to produce this bread even though they had already seen him turn water into wine. In the same way, it does not occur to us that Jesus is willing and able to save others as he saved us. That needs to occur to us as a church. That light bulb needs to come on. That as bad as the world is out there, as bad as your non-Christian friends are, Jesus wants to save sinners. He wanted to save you, didn't didn't he? He did. You, your salvation, is the great argument for your boldness in evangelism. Do you realize that? Who was less likely to be saved than you? You dirty, self-righteous sinner. You are the most unlikely person for us to find within these walls. And so am I. So why do you doubt that Jesus is willing or able to save those around you? Jesus tests our faith in his willingness to multiply our provisions for ministry and to show his glory among us. So when he asks us, From where will we get people, new converts, new elders, new deacons, new members, new servants, new leaders, new evangelists, new church planters? Our answer to Jesus has to be, they will come from you, Jesus. They will come from you as gifts. You you will multiply them to us by your power and by your grace and by your faithfulness. And that is why we gather to pray on Sunday nights, because unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build it in vain. He will have us ask. And in many cases, we do not have because we do not ask. Unless we look to Jesus to provide, bread will not be multiplied to the crowds. And I fear that too often, churches like ours stay small because we don't believe or pray very big. We let ourselves slip into evangelistic pessimism because of our unbelief or church growth cynicism because of other people's unfaithfulness. And small church self-righteousness is what results. Numbers are not everything. That is true. But one element of a healthy church is numerical growth. Healthy human bodies grow bigger and stronger and more effective. So Jesus says, make the men sit down. Jesus shares, delegates his authority with his disciples. He tells them to tell the crowds to sit down. And the crowds now take a posture of inactivity. They're sitting. So now we have human impossibility in the need, met with human immaturity and inadequacy in the boy, and human inactivity in the men sitting. And pretty basic unbelief in Jesus' disciples. (laughs) Only now, against such an unlikely backdrop, does Jesus go to work as he 
planned to do all along since he himself knew from the outset what he would do. In verse 11, Jesus took the loaves. When he gave him thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as many as they wanted, as much as they wanted. So stop there. Philip said 200 days wages wouldn't even give everybody a little bit. Yet suddenly everybody is getting as much as they wanted. They're getting full. People's pants are starting to feel tight in the belly. And some of these men are like, I need to open up a button. That's a lot of bread. I'm done. And for a first century Jew familiar with his Old Testament, the line would have reminded you of the manna in Exodus 16, 18, because whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Bread from heaven, which is exactly how Jesus is going to expound and preach that miracle next week. What gives this account the ring of authenticity, though, is how John records it. He doesn't actually record the miracle at all, does he? Where does he record the miracle? Look at your text. Look at the paragraph. Where does he record the miracle? He only records the results of the miracle. And he only records the results of the miracle in a subordinate clause. It's not a main subject. It's not a main verb. It's when or as. No hocus-pocus, no great expenditure of energy or effort for Jesus, no sensationalized reporting, no paparazzi cover. This is the opposite of tabloid journalism in the gospel. Just he distributed, they ate as much as they wanted, and when they were filled, he told them to gather up the fragments. The miracle occurred somewhere between as much as they wanted and when they were filled. So why the modesty of presentation by John? I mean, if you were writing this, wouldn't you be like, wouldn't you want to kind of jazz it up a little? <laughs> Why no fanfare for what is arguably the greatest miracle of Jesus' whole earthly ministry? Because John is not trying to encourage mere sign faith in Jesus. He doesn't want you to believe in Jesus merely because he can give you as much bread as you want. He doesn't want you to view Jesus and, and, and say to him, show us another one. Do it again. No, John wants your attention to be on who Jesus is, not on how he can perform on demand. John's faith is greater than sign faith, and he wants your faith to be greater than sign faith too. The sign is not an end in itself. It points to the one who performed it. The disciples end up filling 12 baskets full of leftovers so nothing will be lost. There's been a ton of sometimes kind of weird speculation on possible symbolism of the 12 baskets. But as far as I can tell, the reason there's 12 is simply that each of the disciples would have carried one because Jesus was the host and so leftovers belong to him. There may also be a 17th level application supporting the wives and moms in the room that the Bible encourages the eating of leftovers. So husbands and children, leftovers are God's good provision for you. And Jesus gathers them up. And he doesn't want anything to be lost. If there's symbolism in the 12 baskets, it may just be that Jesus is creating his new people through the disciples. And Jesus will provide for his whole church as the new Israel. The whole scene, though, as we already meditated on earlier in the service, clearly echoes 2 Kings 4, where Elisha feeds 100 men on 20 loaves. They ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Of course, Jesus does Elisha's miracle way better than Elisha did it. He feeds way more men on way less bread. 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. Not just 100 men with 20 loaves. And this is one of the biblical allusions, as Jeremiah so rightly pointed out, that makes the crowd say in verse 14, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. The other allusion is probably to Moses and the manna. So here again, like the waiter at the wedding, they speak better than they know. Jesus is a prophet, but he's way more than that, isn't he? See how you can say something true about Jesus and still not know who he is? See how it doesn't matter whether you see a miracle? Because seeing a miracle doesn't necessarily... Under, make you understand who Jesus is and all of his significance for you? He's not just the rainmaker. 
He is the sinless son of God who came to take away the sins of the world and to give you a better kind of bread to satisfy an appetite that you probably don't even know you have. An appetite for reconciliation to the God who created you and for significance from the meaning that Jesus has put into his word in scripture. Now they try to make him king. Watch this, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I mean, and if Jesus wanted to set up an earthly kingdom, he sure missed a good opportunity for it, didn't he? They're ready. Jesus had previously told the disciples to make the men sit on the ground. Now the men try to turn the tables on him and make him king. Same verb. The crowds see what Jesus did, and they think, meal ticket. They think, political candidate. They think, we're the voting block who can get him into power, and he can solve our problems with those pagan Romans. He's our man. Let's make Palestine great again. He's our guy. Let's put him in office. But you see, Jesus isn't interested in that. They still have a saw-eyed notion of kingship. They want a king just like all the other nations have. Right? Bread and circuses. That's what they want. You get a king who can create bread at will, and you are energy independent for life as a nation. I mean, you don't know, you don't need anything, you don't need Keystone XL. You don't need any relationship with any other. You're good. We got bread, man. We got the bread maker. But Jesus will not let that crowd have authority over him. He retains authority over them. He is not their duly elected representative to do their bidding. He is a whole different kind of king presiding over a whole different kind of kingdom. He is not there to take Palestine back for Yahweh. Jesus did not come to inaugurate their kind of kingdom, a merely political or economic one. He is a king, but he is not that kind of king. His kingdom is not of this world. This world will become his kingdom. But that does not mean that this kingdom is like his wor- that his kingdom is like this world or built from it. It is not, and we should learn something from this reaction of the crowds to Jesus' miracles. You can see and experience Jesus' power. You can even benefit from it. You can taste the fruit of it. And yet misinterpret it and misapply it. Is Jesus the prophet who has come into the world? Yes, he is. Is that all Jesus is? No. Did Jesus come to build a geopolitical kingdom like Caesar's or renationalize Israel like all of these crowds suggested that he should? No, he did not. Can you manipulate him into serving your own personal or political agenda? No, he will not let you. He is not there just to make sure your business succeeds. And that your investments grow. And that you feel comfortable and wealthy and happy and content. And like the big man on campus. Didn't come for that. And here again we have John relishing the irony of a confession of faith in Jesus that is either unwittingly accurate or woefully inadequate. So you may wish you could see Jesus do a miracle, but what would you even think of it if you did? Would you even do the right thing with it? It's still sign faith in verses 14 to 15, not saving faith. Sign faith, definitely better than no faith at all, but sign faith is still only faith in Jesus for how he can help me accomplish what I think I deserve. Give me what I think I need. Give me what I think I want. Make my life what I think it ought to be. 
instill faith and how I can manipulate Jesus into doing for me what I think he should do for me. And isn't this all too often how we think of Jesus? Give me wisdom to make the decision I want to make to make my life easier and more pleasant and less troublesome. Usually around keeping more money for myself. Use your power to do what I think you should do when I think you should do it. Be great, but only for our purposes in our lives, not for your purpose in the life to come. Use your power to give us power. See, that's what they wanted. King, get us out from under Caesar's thumb. Use your power to give us power. Use your influence to give us influence. Use your prominence to make us prominent. Get over here and be our kind of king right now. We will seize you by force and make you king. Jesus is the prophet, but he came not to usurp corrupt authority or even just to call it out. He came to die under that corrupt authority to save you and me from our sinful hearts and ambitions. That's why he came. And you got to get that through your head, too. You cannot manipulate him just because your life isn't what you think it ought to be. He won't let you do that. Now, before we move on, we need to say something about the reality of miracles. This is real. This happened. This is not a metaphor. Jesus created bread that had no existence before. He multiplied it. People ate it. And the proof in the pudding is that they wanted to crown him king. I mean, if this was just a fake thing, like, it wouldn't have ended like it did. You cannot eliminate miracles from the Bible or eviscerate the miracles of their reality and meaning without totally losing biblical Christianity altogether. The signs are the external proofs of Jesus' deity, that he is really God. And the greatest one is his resurrection. So if you get carried away with rationalism and modernism and materialism, so that you try to interpret the Bible without the miracles, you come away with a worldview that isn't even Christian. It is, as J. Gresham Machen called it out a hundred years ago, a totally different religion. There's Christianity, and then there is Protestant liberalism that does away with everything supernatural in the Bible to satisfy the scientific mind. They're different religions. Protestant liberalism, miracle-less Christianity, is not Christianity. Christianity is Christianity. Because J.C. Ryle was right. From denying all miracles to downright infidelity is nothing but a regular succession of steps. If a man begins with throwing overboard the miracles, he cannot stop logically till he has given up the Bible and Christianity. End quote. If you don't believe in the miracles, you don't believe in either Jesus or his bodily resurrection from the dead. Which means, in the words of the Apostle Paul, that your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And your Christianity is not Christianity at all. It is worth nothing. But if you believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, then his other miracles pose no problem at all, do they? He is, after all, the sinless Son of God. Second test, quickly. How will we make it ourselves? How are we going to make it ourselves? Verses 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So verse 16 to 17, the sun sets, disciples get into the boat without Jesus. Jesus has hidden himself in the mountains so the crowds don't make him king. Night falls, they're on the water in verse 17. Jesus still isn't with them. Verse 18, a great wind starts blowing really hard. They're already three or four miles offshore, so there's no turning back now. And in the middle of the storm, they see Jesus walking straight towards them on the storm waters. There's no sandbar that far out. 
These are professional fishermen, nautical tradesmen, experts in seamanship, operating in their own field of competence, and they are terrified at what they are seeing at work. They have multiple reasons to be afraid. It's a storm, it's at sea, it's at night, but what really puts them over the edge is seeing Jesus walking on the storm waters. Something is coming to us that has power over everything that is scaring us, that is around us. So now the threat is not just the circumstance. The threat is the thing that's walking on the threat. Because they don't know it's Jesus. This shadowy figure, some kind of sea spirit walking towards them. I mean, that would creep you out, right? Put yourself in their, perspective, in their shoes. You're in a little dinghy, rowing in the middle of the night. It's pitch black out there. All of a sudden you see, the, what is that? Waves are going. What in the world is that thing is coming right towards us? They fear the power of an unknown threat while they're experiencing a kind of powerlessness in the field of their greatest competence. They have quickly come to an end of themselves, they are at their wits' end in the area of life where they are wittiest. They are at their wit's end. So why this narrative and why here? Well, it is chronological. This is what happened the night after the feeding of the 5,000, the night before Jesus explained the meaning of the miracle and the bread of life discourse. And in that sense, it lays some groundwork for the disciples to accept the hard teaching of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood. This happened the night before. Ah, okay. Got it. But in the context of the feeding of the 5,000, it's another test, isn't it? It's a test of their faith. The last test was a test of faith in the context of the impossible, using only what is immature and inadequate for the benefit of those who were inactive. This test at sea is different. This is where the disciples feel most competent, most self-assured, and most responsible to save themselves. This is their job, their trade, their training, and Jesus quickly brings them to an end of their professional competence. So Christian, church, Jesus will have us know that we need him not only for what we know is impossible, we need him even for the things we view as our own strength. We need him even when we assume we could do without him. Remember, the disciples left Jesus on the mountain. Why? Because they're going out in a boat. That's their wheelhouse. They assumed they'd be able to make it across without him, fine. Why? Because they'd done it a thousand times before. And now he proves himself powerful and present and faithful to them right there. And he does that when we have come to an end of our perceived competence. He walks to us on the waters when we are out of our depth, in over our heads, in order to appear at just the right time, to say, it is I. Don't be afraid. There's also another proof of Jesus' power over nature, of course, which is to say a proof that he is God incarnate. Job 9, verse 8, Job said that God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus can do what only God can do because Jesus is God's son. And he wants his disciples to know it. That's why he says to them in the boat, not just it is I, but literally, I am. I am. It's the same phrase. Both are fine translations, but in a context where he's about to say that I am the bread of life, and before Abraham was, I am, this statement on the water, I am, gets them ready for all of Jesus' I am statements all the way throughout the rest of the book. But he doesn't just say I am. He says, do not be afraid, because they were scared both of the situation and of him, at least at first. And when they discover it's him, they cannot welcome him into that boat fast enough. Get in here! (laughs) They were glad to receive him into the boat. They were willing, they wished to receive him into the boat. They wanted to be in the same boat with Jesus. And what happened next is striking. And immediately, the boat came to the land to which they were going What? Not all students of Scripture agree, but I take this as another miracle. 
But the word immediately indicates miraculous, speedy transportation. The only time John has used immediately prior to this is when the paralytic was immediately healed and took up his bed and walked. That was a miracle. And the only time he'll use it again is in confirmation of Jesus' prophecy that Peter would deny him three times in John 18, 27, and immediately a rooster crowed, just like Jesus said it would. So here in chapter 6, it's not that, well, they were already over halfway across by the time Jesus got to them, so by the time he got in the boat, they realized they were all there, oh, it's over already. Wonderful. It's not natural. No, no, no. This is Jesus getting into the boat, getting them to shore in a way that suspended the ordinary laws of time and space and without using the disciples' professional services. Thank you. Put your oars away. (laughs) I don't need your competence. Much like when the deacon evangelist Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, suddenly found himself plopped down in Azotus, one of the greatest lines in the Bible, and Philip found himself in Azotus. (laughs) How did that happen? Or Jesus immediately appearing within locked doors after his resurrection. But there's also Old Testament background to this kind of miracle, one that any Bible-reading Jew would have recognized. Psalm 107, 23 to 30. Some went down in the the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. Psalm 107. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous work in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven on the waves. They went down into the depths on the waves. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. (laughs) It's like Jesus planned it that way. To remind them, that, that's me. I'm him, from Psalm 107. I'm your Savior. Friend, I wonder if you have yet come to your wit's end. To the end of your perceived moral, professional competence. I'm good enough, I got this. Whoop, maybe not. Now I I really know I don't have it. I don't have this at all. What am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to get through this. This is not what I thought I had signed up for. I did not see this coming. I thought I'd be fine getting across this lake. Whether that's in the world or in your home, or in the church. Maybe that's happening to you right now. You are coming to realize I'm at my wit's end. <laughs> I don't have a next play here. Maybe it's been happening to you over the last few months. It is often far scarier to reach the end of our competence than it is to be confronted with we al- what we already knew was impossible. It's scarier to be confronted with I don't know what to do about this problem in my marriage than it is to be confronted with, I don't know how to make people want Jesus to be their Savior. To come to our wit's end is to be confronted with the inadequacy of our own strength. I thought I was good at this, and I'm not. We are no longer good enough, and it is most alarming when we are scared inside our comfort zone. I thought this is where I was safe. But Jesus comes to our rescue even there and reveals himself as the great I am. As one theologian said, this self-revelation in the dark of night during a storm at sea should convince them that in virtue of the glory given to him by God, no darkness was too deep. No waves too high, no sea too wide for him to find them and be with them in the midst of that tumult. That is Jesus for you, Christian. Whatever it is that you're at your wit's end about right now, he knows it and he can come find you right in it.
and he will get right into that boat with you. No darkness is too deep. No waves are too high. No sea is too wide for Jesus to... He's not sitting there on the side of the mountain thinking, stupid disciples, just row! He's not saying that to you. He's gracious to you. He sees you struggling in that storm that he brought into that lake in your life, and he's coming right at you. He's saying, I'm, it, is, it is I. I am. I am in this with you, for you. Be not afraid. He's not making fun of you for your incompetence. He is inviting your trust in him. And he is displaying his power to you as that which you need to trust more than you trust your competence to live your own life. You need him in your boat. Even if you think you're a professional out there. Jesus has commanded us to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all he commanded us. And his promise is that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. He doesn't get out of the boat. He will never leave us or forsake us, and he wants us to know him as the great I am, whose power is for our salvation and fruitfulness in ministry. God has put all things under Jesus' feet, even the wind and the waves and the waters of chaos all around us, and God has given Jesus as head over all things to the church. He is head over everything out there for all of us in here. Jesus, by virtue of his sinless life, his death for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, has earned the right to be head over all things, and he exercises that power for the sake of the church. And so J.C. Ryle said, he can come to our aid in an hour when we think not. He was the last person the disciples expected to see out there. They thought they left him on the mountain, because they did. They thought he wasn't coming with them because he wasn't. And now here he is, just in time. He can come to our aid in an hour when we think not and in ways that we did not expect. And when he comes, all will be calm. The life of the church can sometimes feel like that storm-tossed boat four miles offshore The darkness surrounds us, the winds are against us, the waters are choppy, and we feel at times we might get capsized. The going can be rough, and at times we wonder if we're going to make it to that farther shore. But Jesus tests our faith in order to prove his power. And so we should expect him to reveal his glory, and we should trust him to rescue us. Jesus overcomes impossibilities, not just odds. So we should trust and obey Jesus. We should pray to him together as a church for all of our needs, desires, plans for ministry. And we should expect Jesus to prove his faithfulness when he tests our faith and when our boat is getting tossed around. Christ's church is now a tossed ship, J.C. Ryle said. Man, I wish this thought had occurred to me apart from J.C. Ryle, but if it did, I would be way too proud. This is great. I wish I could be this kind of preacher. J.C. Ryle, Christ's church is now a, this didn't even occur to me until I read it. Christ's church is now a tossed ship in the midst of a stormy sea. The great master has gone up to heaven to intercede for his people, left alone for a while and to return. And when Jesus returns again to his tossed and afflicted church at the second advent, their troubles will soon be over. They will soon be in harbor. So, don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now. We're almost home. The promised land is calling. We're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then. We are almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. This journey ours together. We're almost home unto that great forever. We're almost home. What song anew we'll sing from that happy throne. Come, vein of heart. We're almost home.
His life is just a vapor. We're almost home. That sun is setting yonder. We're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes. We're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord. We're almost home. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we feel it in so many different ways. We can't even talk about all the ways that we feel so tossed around. And it often doesn't feel like we're almost there. It feels like we just started. And we don't know what to do, and you've brought us to our wit's end. You've brought us to an end of ourselves. We, we don't know what else to do in our marriages, in our parenting, in our job, in our church, in our own struggles against our own sins. We don't have this. We do not have this. We thought we did. And you are asking us, from where will your bread come? We must admit it only can come from you, from above. We cannot produce it. We cannot multiply it. We can't make it. We can't be enough for other people. We can't even be enough for ourselves. Jesus, you have taught us this. So help us to admit it to ourselves, to one another, to you. Be in our boat. We are glad to see you. We're glad to hear your word. Please, please come into our boat and get us there all the way. Despite our incompetence, despite our fear, provide and get us there together. For Jesus' sake, amen.